Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 23 which you will find in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles, beginning on page 3 or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sally, I don't think your testimony is boring. It's a miracle. And the creative and various ways in which God calls us and saves us. So we want to hear more. We want to hear more. And if you want to share your testimony with our church of where God's at work in your life. We would love to hear it because it encourages all of us to keep on the journey. And that's why we do it week after week or however often we get to do it. And we're trusting that as you share your stories, as you share those stories, we'll have those opportunities to share it outside these walls because there are so many people who love to hear those kinds of stories. So God bless you and thank you. You know, this week, I, last week rather, I got an email from someone at the church, one of our members here, and this woman was telling me about her, her time with an organization called 4-H. You know what that is? How many of you have heard of 4-H? Woo! Lots and lots of hands going up. Do you know the meaning of the 4-Hs? Yeah, I didn't really know. I've heard of 4-H. I think it's in Jamaica, but I never participated The four H's, it means head, heart, hands, and then health. 
And we're not, we don't have four H's, but we have three H's. And I'm so grateful that Pastor Amanda picked that theme up with our children because we want to believe that when we follow Jesus with the whole person, with our minds, with our affections, with our bodies, I believe we will grow into spiritual health. So we're not quite 4-H, but, but really the outcomes would be amazing if we were to do that, when we follow Jesus in that way. The last day of uh, this year, of last year, December 31st, I think all of us, many of us would have heard the news that uh, Joseph Ratzinger died. He was also called Pope Benedict II. And often with people like that when they die, we do retrospectives on the person's life. And so lots and lots of what Pope Benedict had written, his books, his papers were being put out in various places. I, I knew about some of his books and hadn't really read any of them, knew that he was a, a brilliant New Testament scholar. And in one of the articles I read, it's, um, the article is called uh, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love. If you can see those words, I just, I just loved that when I, when I was reading that article and I saw what he said about being a Christian, being a disciple, and it fits so much with what I want to share with you this morning. He says, look, it's not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but he says it's the encounter with an event, a person which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. And then I just love the way he closes that quote. He says, keep that clear and all will be well. Lose sight of it. Nothing else in the long run will really matter. And I believe that. It's that important. Last Sunday, I said that the call to follow Jesus begins with this decisive call to repentance from sin. Now, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit into the world to convict us of three things, to convict us of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And I think what the Holy Spirit does, he prepares our hearts so that when Jesus calls us, we won't come to Jesus just out of shame. We will come to Jesus out of a recognition that something in my life isn't right. I can't fix it. And Lord, I look to you. So that call begins with a repentance from sin and then a response of faith and obedience. And I would offer to you this morning that we cannot follow Jesus the Messiah until we come under those terms. You see, without repentance from sin, without repentance from sin, yes, we will be, and forgive me if I use these words, we will be fans. We'll be part of the crowd. And I want you to read the Gospels this year because you're going to find that there were two types of people, maybe three types of people that followed Jesus. There were the critics, there were the crowds, the, the, the people that just, they wanted to see the, the show. And then there were the followers, the people who were bought in. So what I'd like to do with my remaining time is to have you consider what happened to those two brothers 
and the practices that I see Jesus calling them to. And it's not just them, it's us. When you look at the reaction of these brothers, they weren't signing up to be fans. They were all in. And I pray the Holy Spirit will help us to do the same this morning. What are those three practices? And I call them formative practices. If, you, if you're really serious about following him, these practices must be part of your life. The idea of following Jesus is a practice, and I'll tell you why in a moment. The idea of embracing change, because when Jesus calls us, he calls us as we are. He doesn't leave us as we are. He wants to change us. And the third thing Jesus does when he calls us, and I believe this is a formative practice, he wants us to engage, engage in mission. Following Jesus, I think it means to imitate him. I think it means to recognize that he is our forerunner, like those footprints in the, sta in the sand. He's already gone ahead of us, and we're not making this up. We're just following in his footsteps, following his way of life, a way of life. I'm all, I've always been puzzled, though, when, they, when Jesus called those brothers, they left their nets, and they followed him. And I said, wow, I've been a father all these years, and when I talk to my kids, and I talk to my kids, and I talk to my kids, and I look behind, where are they? I've always wished my kids would be like James and John and Andrew and, and his brother and just, okay, Dad, we're right here. And they just do it right away. Why did they just drop their nets all of a sudden to follow him? And I think it's because John the Baptist did an awesome job paving the way. And telling everybody that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to announce the kingdom. And he's looking for people to join him. And I, I'm not even worthy. And, you know, people thought John the Baptist was like Elijah. And he said, no, I'm, when he comes, I'm like a nobody. And so when, when Jesus comes on the scene and they knew it was him, they said, okay, we're in. But I think there's a problem here. It's great to see how quickly they drop their nets, but there's a problem here we need to consider. Because normally what happens is, if you and I were living in that time, and we knew that Rabbi Akiba, or, or, or one of the great rabbis of that time, we would go to his door, knock on the door, and say, Rabbi, please accept me as one of your followers. Rabbi would say, I'm sorry, we're full. Try the next rabbi down the street. And you go to the next rabbi, you knock on the door and say, would you please accept me? I want to be one of your followers. That's how it was supposed to work. Rabbi doesn't come looking for you. You're looking for a way in. In our reading, though, that's not how it happened. These brothers weren't looking for Jesus. Maybe Sally wasn't looking for Jesus. I know I wasn't looking for Jesus. I went to a church one Friday night and Jesus wasn't on my mind. I met that young woman over there. <laughs> These guys weren't looking for Jesus. They were, they were busy trying to make a living. But Jesus is different. He knows we're not looking for him. He knows it's not in our inclination to come to him. 
So he comes to us. And you know, when Jesus called them, they had only, I think maybe they had only two options. I'm going to simplify it this morning. They had only two options. Follow me. And they said, yes. And we know that they were serious because they dropped their nets and James and John said, Dad, I'll see you later. I mean, these guys left the family business. And so we could say these guys weren't fans. But the other response can be no. Remember in, in Matthew 19, and I want you to read the Gospels this year. Did I say that already? Matthew 19, rich young ruler. Now, Jesus wasn't looking for him. He comes to Jesus, and he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, sure. So here's what I want you to do. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And did he say yes? He didn't. Scriptures tell us that he went away sad. He wasn't ready to follow him. These disciples followed him. They went in his direction. This is one of my favorite passages. One that I memorized many years ago when it became clear to me that I didn't find Jesus, that Jesus chose me, that Jesus chose you. Jesus reminded the disciples that you, John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me. Can, can we just hear that this morning? I know we are living in one of the most powerful countries in the world. We have options. We can pretty much do anything we want to do because we have the money and the wherewithal. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, let us just humble ourselves and hear this this morning. It's a blessing to be part of a Christian community, and we are here not because we chose him, but he chose us. And he appointed us to go and bear fruit. And I want to believe that when Jesus chose the disciples, it's very similar to the way God chose Israel. Israel wasn't looking for God. Israel was in bondage. And God chose them and then said, look, I'm going to send you out as a light to the nations. Chose them for a purpose. So there's no room for pride in this house. There is no room for self-congratulation in this house. We didn't get into Jesus' academy because we got straight A's. He called us. He called us. When he called them, this is where it gets hard, and this is where things begin to fall apart. And if you think in your mind, if I think in my mind that following Jesus means I just find a way to get to church on a Sunday morning, and then I'm off the hook the rest of the week, we're really not understanding what it means to follow. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And that's a whole different sermon. That's a whole different conversation. But the big thing Jesus often said to the people was, if you will be my disciples, he would say, pick up your cross and follow me. And when I was a youngster, I used to try to picture in my mind, man, a wooden cross, trying to, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you are going to die to yourself every day. That's the cross you're going to bear as you seek to follow me. And in America, we must say, and in many countries in the West, we must say then that following Jesus is not sort of a monthly check-in. It's not like, okay, it's Christmas, let me check in. It's Easter, let me check in. 
Let me, oh good, I have a little break in my schedule here. Let me do a little following. No, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, you got to follow me daily. Daily. And what happens when you do something daily? You know, maybe I shouldn't tell these secrets, right, Judith? Our, our crazy family, we're doing this, this uh, 30-day challenge push-up. And uh, the parents aren't doing that great, but the young ones are just kind of whooping us. But we're, 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 we're hanging in there. But what I'm finding out, you know, when I started out with the 30-day challenge, one, two, three, four, five, break. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, break. Well, guess what? Day 25, 45, no break. What happens when you do something daily? Your body, your mind, your spirit begins to conform. It's reshaped. And when I read that, my heart broke. Because I'm doing a lot of reading these days about the dangers of overexposure to devices. And what we're finding out, when you do something daily, like you spend your waking hours staring at I don't know, Instagram or TikTok and all that stuff, and, and you're just consumed with it, your mind also begins to change. And what we're finding out is that people aren't reading books anymore. They can't concentrate. Any of the adults want to say it's true? Because it's not just the kids. I'm not even talking about the kids here today. We are struggling to read and to concentrate and to go deep because our minds have literally been short-circuited and, and altered by the over, the daily exposure to screens. So when Jesus says, follow me daily, he knows what he's talking about because it takes time to learn how to pray. It takes time to learn how to obey. It takes time to actually say the kind of prayer that we prayed this morning, Carol. I am, have a problem. But that's what daily following does. Let me quickly run on. I'm taking too long. Jesus also is calling us to a second practice, and I call it embracing change. Embracing change. Notice the process again. He says to them, follow me, and then forwards. I will make you. In the Greek, it's one word. It's one word. The word to transform. It's a Greek word. It's written in the future tense. It's the idea that God's not finished with us yet. He's calling us today, and I will make you. Tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and next year, and 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm still making you, I'm still changing you. Are you ready for that? To remake us, to shift and reorder our priorities and our desires. Instead of just focusing on ourselves, we learn to look out and see what's going on in the world and to be part of that to have a heart for God's kingdom. You spend time with Jesus, and Jesus will change you. He will make you. 
You begin to have a love, a real love for people, all kinds of people. And when we love the way Jesus loves, and let me wrap this up. When we love the way Jesus loves, then, then we are also then engaging in the mission of Jesus. You hear Sally talking about her friends, writing in her journal about a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Where's that coming from? Is it some kind of spiritual egotism? No, no, it's real, it's real. You really begin to develop a concern for people around you. Begin to fish for people is what Jesus says. You begin to make disciples. And I'm telling you, friends, you can, you, you can see the, 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 the dynamite coming into a person's life when they've been following Jesus daily, trying to walk in his word, trying to spend time with him, when they allow Jesus to invade the inner sanctum of their beings and begin to change them, and they begin to see the needs around them. What we're trying to do here at First Prez is to create this culture for discipleship. We think that it is so critical to the survival of Christianity in America that we are experimenting right now. We haven't made a big deal about this. We haven't announced it. It's not a program. We're just slowly, surreptitiously trying to inject some yeast into the life of our church where we're getting people together one-to-one -one or one with two or one with three or small groups, small groups of men getting together to study the Bible, to read, to encourage, to pray for each other. The goal being in the process of doing that together, we might begin to practice the way of Jesus. Practice. Notice I said practice. And if you want to know more about that, if you'd like to, you know, Pastor Ray, I really want to follow Jesus. I want to be, I want to get into one of these groups. I want to meet one-on-one -on -one with somebody. I want to meet uh, in a dyad with somebody. I want to get into a little group where that's happening, a small group where that's happening. Then I encourage you to seek out folks here today. We have people who are small group leaders. I see Karen, I see Dan Shaw, I see Rosemary Malk, Richard Bell, just people here who will say, yeah, let's talk about it. What I want you to hear this morning is that this business of discipleship is critical. It's one of the last words Jesus said to his followers, go and make disciples. Let me quickly run through this. This is just sort of a, a, a quick overview of what I, observe, what I have observed as I've read more and more about religion in America, that there was a time in this country when Americans had this sense of, a deep sense of transcendence. Some call it civic religion. Some say it was just a cultural upbringing. But there was a time in this country when on Sunday morning, it wasn't really much of an option. People went to church for good or bad. After, the world, after world War II ended, people came back even more in droves to the church. And back then, all you had to do was build a building and they would just come in because that was in the air, that was in our culture. You went to church and we kept building bigger and bigger buildings because the people were coming. Built them in the day. You go to all of our downtown communities in America and you see these big edifices of a time when. And then people wanted to move out to the suburbs for various reasons which we won't get into. 
And they built them out there and people came. Were they followers? Were they fans? Were they just part of a crowd? God knows. But here's what the problem was back then. We didn't have to disciple people because they were just coming. But then something changed. And we entered a long season. We're still in that season of incredible material prosperity and wealth. And people today have options. They find other things to do with their time. Their bodies may be in church, and I'm grateful that you're here. But for so many of us, our hearts, our minds, you know, it's, it's on the stuff that we need to get done when we leave here. We have entered the age of what I call that me-ism age. It's truth, but it's my truth. It's my happiness. The highest good is for me to be happy. I don't want to hear about your objective truth. That's your opinion. That's where we are. And so we have seen a radical shift in how we think and how we practice faith. And what's happening now is buildings like these, communities like these that once was the centerpiece of a community, once booming congregations are buckling under years of just adding people to the roles without having to think about training and calling people to the practices of Jesus. And what I said to, as I was thinking about this, is that we've moved away from what Jesus called us to multiply and our new math is just to add. We want to add people to the roles. When you talk to the members of many of these congregations, even right here in Evanston, I meet with uh, all kinds of people. The Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, Lutheran churches, they're talking about the same thing. We, we, boy, we're trying to figure out how to just get more people here. And the question is why? Why do we need more people here? Why do we need more members? We don't need more members, right? Do we? I don't think so. What they'll say is, and it's a good thought, yeah, we want the building to be full again. We still have those old black and white pictures where it was bursting at the seams. And we want to go back to that day. They want to add, Jesus wants us to multiply. And sadly, that's not going to work. It won't work. The solution isn't to add people. Because the people who say we want to grow the church, they themselves aren't prepared to grow. And if we're not prepared to grow, if we're not prepared to do what the brothers did, James and John and Andrew and his brother, if we're not prepared to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you daily, I'm going to open my life so that you can change me, and I'm going to join you in the mission that you're calling us to, to make disciples who make disciples, then we have no right to say we want our church to grow. No, this is not some kind of addition. This is about multiplying. So what happens when we seek growth for the church and not for ourselves? Well, I'll, I'll talk to you about that, but not today. We'll, we'll try to talk about that next week. Would you, would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that indeed you are calling us back to a way of life, a kingdom way of life, 
and we can't do it by ourselves. We repent, Lord, of the way in which our culture has invaded our sense of church. Bring us back to the ethics of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. God's people say, Amen.